0: Hello and welcome to the SLB Podcast, where we talk about ELT, SLA and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. I'm Neil McMillan, president of the SLB Cooperative. And coming up in episode 9, we have the second part of the Course Group debate with myself, Jeff Jordan, Nick White and Matthew Elman. First of all, Jeff and I have a little chat about current goings-on in ELT and beyond. Good to
1: see you, Neil! <laughs>
0: How are you doing? I hear you've been working hard. Mike Long is pushing you hard. Yes, i am
1: actually finally managed to get my thumb out and uh, motoring. Um, I've done three chapters now. Um, he's done four or five. So it's going okay. We're, we're, we hope to finish
0: November. And this is the book uh, you and Mike are writing, and the title is
1: "ELT: The Way It Is and the Way It Could Be." Um, In fact, I think it's "ELT Adult." You know, we're not dealing with uh, young learners. Okay. But that's the idea. He uh, liked the stuff I was doing on the blog about uh, coursebook-driven ELT, and he suggested we do the book. Now, the first part is, you know, the the basic, how do people learn? And Mike's obviously the one who's going to do lots of that. Then it's um, how is ELT actually organized today? And we're looking at that and then teacher training and so on. And the final part will be our suggestions um, for ways out or ways to make progress, including, of course, um, task-based language teaching and joining a co-op like the one you so brilliantly
0: lead. <laughs> I don't know if my leadership is characterized by my, my brilliance.
1: <laughs> well, um, no, that's, it's brilliant because you allow us, you know, because you don't. <laughs> that's what's good about it. you um, not Lenin.
0: <laughs> no, no, not, not yet. I aspire more to being <laughs> Stalin. <laughs> um, You've been working on stuff then on the book related to teacher training as well, haven't you? Because there have been some discussions about CELTA recently and I think you've been doing research into that more.
1: Yes, I looked at the history of um, ELT, teacher training, teacher education, now referred to usually as SLTE, second language teacher education. Um, and I'm concerned with the move towards uh, back's beliefs. Uh, uh, in any case, it's a socio-cultural view of teacher training, where you have to understand where the teacher's at and where the teacher's coming from, their their beliefs and attitudes and knowledge and so on, which I think is first um, in the hands of many a kind of navel gazing, too much concentration on. My experience of you experiencing me—the usual uh, socio-cultural stuff—that I'm, as you know, not very impressed with. Um, uh, so that's part of it. Uh, I think it infects the IATEFL and TESOL special interest groups devoted to teacher education in that they they focus so much on uh, the teacher's point of view, the teacher's uh, profile, the teacher's beliefs. Um, And to some extent, I I understand that, because they're quite right when they say what you teach people in um, teacher training courses, uh, very often there's an an awful mismatch between the course and what the teachers then go back and actually do in the classroom. Um, So however much you might preach community language teaching to them, uh, there's a tendency that they'll go back to the classroom and revert to a very audiolingual method, you a very sort of outdated PPP sort of approach. And, excuse me, that's because um, this is where the the argument goes. Um, That's the way they were taught and that's kind of um, what they believe and what their attitude is. And that's, they're not, you know. So unless you get them to talk about that, then you won't actually uh, match up the training with the experience. Well, I, I think that's true to a certain extent, but it kind of snuffs out all the content. They don't talk about, what are you doing? Why are you, You know, what's the validity or what's what's the efficacy of, of, of spending so much time teaching grammar and so on? Hmm. And that goes, just, just goes accepted, but they, they accept without question, hmm. the status quo, the course book driven ELT model, and they think that teacher training uh, is a matter of teacher education, ongoing stuff is a matter of uh, talking to teachers about their, their beliefs and so on. Mm. And I, I think um, there's just too much of that and not enough. Concentrate again. It's just that nobody talks about how people learn a second language, and that's really should be the root, in my opinion, uh, where we start from.
0: Right, or it's uh, it's not that nobody talks about it, but it's probably patchy at best. And um, I Absolutely. think that's something else that's course, been discussed recently is the variability. Yeah. In some of these courses, that they might have the same name, the same certificate that people receive at the end of it, but people have had varying levels of input on these kind of matters and I suspect the majority don't really go there. But (laughs) but we can't really say that with any empirical certainty. But anyway.
1: If you look at their syllabus, Neil, you know, Mm. then okay, look at the syllabus for Celta, for example, and see how much attention they pay to how people learn a second language on the syllabus. Sure. Almost no mention of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so they, maybe there are some people that do mm. trainers, you and others. Uh, of course, there's a chance that some do, but it's not emphasised. It's not given any real importance uh, by the people who organise the syllabus
2: and and um, are responsible for, for handing out uh,
1: the certificates. Right. You can perfectly well pass CELTA with a distinction without going anywhere near elementary texts on how people learn a second language mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. well cool that's something we're actually going to get back to although it will be the recording of our earlier conversation with nick white and uh matthew ellman we're gonna have later on is the part two of the so-called course book debate. (laughs) Although when I listened back to it, it was definitely not very much debate, but we do get onto teacher training and it's quite interesting. But I wonder, speaking of beliefs and attitudes and debates, and I wonder if we can broach this topic without getting canceled. (laughs) Um, There was this recent kind of astonishing exchange on Twitter uh, that I think you saw as well, uh, neither of us really got too involved with, I think, probably, thankfully. But not about ELT, about freedom of expression, about other things. And we had Neil McCutcheon feeling like he was being cancelled or being called transphobic by, well, I don't know, this is the question, did he get cancelled by a kind of horde of woke warriors, <laughs> policing, uh, uh, well, or Tim Hampson, I think, was who got most involved, Did you? What, what are, what's your take on that? Because I've seen you recently- uh, Well,
1: first, yeah. um, it's interesting that I'm blocked by both Hugh Della and uh, Neil McClutton, both of them blocked me, so it was a bit difficult for me <laughs> to follow that thread. What um, I saw first was something from Anthony uh, Gorn. Yeah. Yes, uh, defending Neil. Yeah who um, coming to his defense after Neil has said, Right, that's it, I'm leaving Twitter because I've been sort of bullied. Hmm. Um, so, what I do when I want to read what I, any Twitter person who's blocked me is I use another search engine and just go to Twitter and put in Hugh Della or Neil or whoever it is a long list of uh, people who blocked me. Um, And then you can read their blog because uh, in that thing you're not recognized. You're not, you know. So um, I got there and I read what Hugh Deller had written. And I think uh, as usual, his style is, written style is not very good at all, vulgar and badly worded. I have to say that I agree with just about everything he said, and <laughs> That's I do the most think
0: most shocking thing about this.
1: I know, I know, I, I, I said that on, uh, you know, uh, but anyway, what I do agree with is that you you know you, you can be too sensitive and too, uh, and I do think, I, I, as you know, I'm a kind of a school of hard knocks. I you know, if, if you go in an academic community with people like Kevin Craig and Mike uh, Long and Stephen Preston and these sort of Petermen. And they do not hold back. If you write rubbish or you, you speak, you know they'll, 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 they'll tell you. And I always felt, of course, I got a terrible amount of trouble and sometimes I absolutely deserve to be uh, told off for going over the limit. Um, but I do think people are too sensitive, too
0: easily hurt. Well, this is the kind um, of irony, isn't it, uh, Duff? Because usually it's the defenders of free speech and people who are put themselves against, let's call it, identity politics or this kind of more postmodern way of looking at identity. These are the people that are usually called out as being snowflakes. But what we're seeing maybe is a sensitivity on the part of people calling for free speech that when people agree, disagree with the positions that they are kind of advocating, then there's a sensitivity on that side to say, oh, you know, you called me racist or transphobic and uh, I'm blocking you now. So it strikes me that if you're going to stand in this free speech side of things, you have to be able to take pelters, if you like. This is one of the things that I find, you know, I think Twitter sometimes it does turn into this horror show of people talking past each other or misunderstanding or it seemed to me two things happened here. I think when Hugh Deller first responded to Neil. All Neil did, um, Neil McCutcheon, who, uh, as I said, I think before, I don't ag- agree with that often, but I wouldn't like to see him leave Twitter. You know, I think he's somebody who makes good contributions and he has interesting things to say, even though we disagree a lot. Anyway, he'd simply posted something that Nick Cave had written. And I didn't bother reading it because I'm not particularly interested in what Nick Cave has to say. But that triggered Hugh Deller, who I suspect just doesn't like Nick Cave very much. (laughs) It might not be anything to do with um, the political side of it. But yes, so that that kicked off in that direction. And I think the fact that the person who had referred to Nick Cave was the editor of Quillette, which I think triggers a lot of people on the left, because it's uh, often defending positions which, frankly, at times seem more than borderline Uh, racist or transphobic or sexist or whatever. That's my opinion, of course. Yes, Um, I agree with it. (laughs) Anyway, but then further down down the line, what seemed to happen was J.K. Rowling got brought into the conversation because, of course, she is somebody who you could say was, I don't know, I can't can't really defend the idea that she was cancelled because she's somebody that obviously can speak to a lot of people, has got her own platform, it's difficult to cancel something like that. But certainly she was attacked for some of her views on transgender people. And I think what happened was that Neil said that what JK Rowling was saying was legitimate, you know, that it's what he called the marketplace of ideas. There was a legitimate thing in them, you know, I have a problem with this idea of a marketplace of ideas because ideas are not (laughs) commodities. You know, it makes me think that defending the free marketplace of ideas is just another way of defending free markets. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Full stop. But anyway, what Tim seemed to, now Tim or Neil or anyone, I'm sure they can write to us and say, you're wrong, I didn't mean that at all. Tim seemed to be, you know, when you analyze what J.K. Rowling said, I mean, a lot of it is defending this very narrow idea of biological sex and basically saying that trans women are men. This is how Neil summarized it. And then Neil's defending that as a legitimate idea in the marketplace of ideas. And for Tim, and I think I kind of agree with him, it's a transphobic idea because you're saying that this trans person, there's nothing trans about them, or that the trans part is a kind of sham. And if they have enough therapy, maybe they wouldn't, maybe that's not what both people think. But I just think if you are saying that a trans woman is really a man, or, you know, I think that's basically what you're, what you're saying. But it got, I got the impression that Tim was just saying, this idea that you are defending is transphobic. And then what Neil did was take that personally and say, I've been called a transphobe. Um, I've been cancelled. You know, it's that. It's
1: ridiculous. It's (laughs) utterly ridiculous. Um, I quite agree with you. I think uh, in the end, uh, J.K. Rowling was... was was transphobic and uh, I think those who criticised her were quite right to to make the points they did. And as you say, God knows she's strong enough and powerful enough and rich enough to to look after herself. Uh, You might say that, you know, it it went too far, that uh, some of the stuff that was said, some of the insults she received, uh, were were completely out of place and so on. Well, you know, that happens. Um, But for Neil to, on the one hand, say, oh, you know, the free (laughs) marketplace for ideas, which I agree is a very unfortunate way to talk about free expression. But in any case, for him to sort of bang on about that and then (laughs) get so upset that he says, I'm I'm out of here, I can't bear it anymore, I'm going to leave Twitter, Um, it's it's absurd. And of course, uh, which he was also called out for by... Um, Tim and then by Della um, was was blocking people himself. I mean, what kind of marketplace of three ideas is that? So there were sort of multiple contradictions in it. You know, as, exactly as you say, he he says we should be allowed to say whatever we want.
0: Well, I guess we all have different levels of tolerance. tolerance. It, strikes me, <laughs> it strikes me if you're defending this marketplace of ideas and you're saying that things like the things that Rowling said are a little legitimate. You know, I I, I agree with you. I, I, I don't like the excessive tone policing that's going on these days. I do think uh, there's a hypersensitivity on both sides of this so-called culture war about what can and can't be said. I do think the free speech side is a thin veil at times for defending some pretty bad and pretty dodgy ideas, yeah. especially about race and, and gender, just ideas that are not particularly helpful, and uh, they're like kind of gateway drugs. They kind of seem legitimate. And I know Neil's a fan of people like um, Sam Harris and, and all the rest of it, and I, but I think these people are in some, some ways more dangerous than they appear because their so-called kind of rational approach to all these ideas just I don't know, often I feel it's like a kind of gateway drug to more extreme views on race and gender that are uh, not very helpful. I suppose Anthony stepped in and then I think we did get somebody else calling someone a transphobe a bit more directly and at that point I just thought, you know, it's just really got out of hand.
2: Yes.
1: I, I mean, I, I do think myself that there's uh, too much of a political correctness and that, um, got, you know, we feel like you're treading on eggshells egg and you know, when you go near any of a number of sensitive <laughs> sort of areas. Um, uh, of course, uh, it's absolutely true that uh, you know it's about time we, we stopped uh, all this sort of institutionalised racism and and uh, you know anti-feminist stuff and so on. And and, and of course, I, I quite support the the struggle of, of people like transgender. Absolutely, um, and maybe they do need a bit more protection than you know. That's so all. But you know, I, I often feel myself that this political correctness—it does get a bit kind of um, silly at times. You you know.
0: Yeah. Well, you seem to be concerned recently about cultural Marxists, and, uh, <laughs> and you had a bit uh, Yes,
1: I think that. I went. I, I think I'd have to retract that actually if I looked again at it, which I haven't. But if I did, I think I, I'd, I'd have to bow to your. I, I think I was mistaken
0: about that yeah okay um, Fair enough. i mean
1: there is that tendency a part of it but it's not i don't think i put my position well i, I think i was wrong
0: maybe i it think it's a question of labels isn't it because i think i just think cultural marxist is something used by the right to attack anything yes in the universities as uh as to do with identity politics um, yeah i think it's more of a slur it's a bit like the phrase woke or whatever, that are all, yes. all into yeah. like slurs and uh, not very helpful expressions when it comes to having a discussion, as, as yeah. Twitter is not a very helpful platform when it comes to having a, a discussion about these. It's, it's
1: just kind of weird, Twitter, and why we sort of bother. I um, work at the computer for you know, writing on this book now. So I'm on uh, sitting at my desk here several hours a day and I just have sort of Twitter in the background there and you know it's quite likely that I spend an hour a day reading and scribbling and I wonder really how, you know, what, what is it about it is a bit sort of strange um, you know because I, I can't think of too many times that I've learned very much <laughs> <laughs> from, you know, occasionally you get somebody recommending a good book or, or something like that, but on the whole, the arguments like that one between Neil and, uh, you know, okay. are not very, it doesn't get you very far, does it? You know, why do we bother?
0: I think, you know, as a network for particular interests, I still I still like it, and like you say, maybe someone recommends a book. Maybe Maybe you post an article that has just been published Researchers increasingly are, are drawing attention to their own research through Twitter, which I think is really useful. And there can be some, you know, I think as an information resource, it's, uh, it can be good. I think also there's a part of us that enjoys being provoked and maybe sometimes we enjoy provoking others. And uh, <laughs> if you want to light off steam, maybe uh, just belting out some ill-considered remark and for <laughs> um, I don't think Neil's that kind of person. I think you know, I do. Uh, I do hope Neil McCutcheon doesn't leave Twitter. I I think he's someone who tries to be reasonable. He tries to be polite. I think he is someone maybe more sensitive than than should be on Twitter at times. But that isn't necessarily a a defect on his part. Um, so anyway, although I kind of more agree with Tim, I do hope Neil doesn't leave. Uh,
1: no, I'm sure, he, well, I think he made a decision there, if I read it properly, he his initial reaction to being accused of transphobia was, was, right, that's it, I'm out. And and very quickly afterwards, he wrote, I'm not bugger it, I'm not going, you know, yeah. I, I won't be bullied out sort of
0: thing. Good, good. So well, he
1: decided to stay, yeah. and he even uh, made the <laughs> gesture of unblocking me.
0: <laughs> yes. I like that. Yeah, uh, when you call them a fucking
1: <laughs> which I, I thought I just couldn't resist that. I hope he I think he took it in in good spirits.
0: I think it was um, and highlight, I the highlight of the whole thread. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I quite agree. I hope he stays and um yes. Of course well, he's oh, got yeah. he's
0: One of the three meals involved in TBLT and I have to <laughs> defend my own. The other one being uh-huh. Neil Anderson, of course, Neil, the two neils McCutcheon and Anderson uh, publish a blog with yes. uh, TBLT Lesson Ideas and then publish the book of activities, yeah. which leads us nicely on <laughs> 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 to uh, mentioning we have the third edition of our TBLT online course for teachers and course designers um, now available for registration. Uh, so I just want to plug that a little bit before we listen to the course book debate part two. So, we've got the course scheduled to begin in mid October of this year, 2020, and we'll publish the link to to sign up or to get more information in the show notes. Yep. But yeah, it's it's kind of morphed again a little bit. So, we've got a 100 hour course. The, the number of hours <laughs> creep up a little bit, but it's a nice round number. It's a 100 hour course, but it's over uh, quite a number of weeks. So, it will start in October and stretch on to April, so we tried to pace it out. We've got a new look and feel to the course design. And the main thing is we've kind of reduced the number of tasks participants have to do to to five key tasks, which I think we're just trying to pay attention to this call to make TBL teacher, teacher education more task-based in itself. So we always have done, I think, but we're just trying to make that more explicit. So five key tasks, uh, I think it's more streamlined. and I'm hoping it's just as attractive, if not more, than previous courses. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Got the first sign sign-up, so hope many more will sign will sign up for the course.
1: Yeah, I think um, we should say we. I think we've learned quite a lot from the first two editions we did of the course. Um, first, I think you're absolutely right to emphasise the need to walk the talk, so that our TBLT course should should be based on tasks. And and the other thing I think you've done very well, and it far more you than me, is address the question of um, just how realistic is uh, Mike Long's very demanding uh, framework and how that can be uh, softened somewhat and, and how we can help teachers working in various contexts to take advantage of the, the the good stuff about TBLT and not think it's just utopian. Very important to stress that this is a real uh, practical thing we're, we're talking about and something that can make a big practical difference to teachers in the way they carry out their job and hopefully they'll make their teaching more enjoyable and, and more efficacious. That's, that's really what we're doing. Um, right. And finally, to say that uh, what inspired me to join in with you on this is, is that if you criticize something, like I strongly criticize course book driven elt and i think you are pretty much bound to suggest what you would do in its place um, and so tblt is our answer to that tblt is far more uh, consistent with what we know about how people learn a second language mm. it doesn't uh, contradict those findings and um that's why um you say well okay, if you don't like course books, then what would you do? Well, this is what we do. Mm. And we try to encourage teachers to be familiar, get familiar with with this uh, alternative and to not be put off by the thought uh, that it's um, unrealistic, that it's utopian. Mm. And that's what I think you've done so well is to address those questions and to try to see in what ways we can adapt uh, and, and bend and use uh, Mike uh, Long's ideas uh, in, in
0: practical situations. Right. And we're very happy, of course, to count on Mike again to uh, be a guest tutor on the course, Mike Long, as well as Roger Gilabert, uh, both of them who add a lot of value, I think. And we hopefully will get Glenn Filcher again to talk about task based assessment. Which was a really interesting conversation we had with him for the last course, and maybe it's, <laughs> I'd like to do a podcast with Glenn if he'd be up for it. I yes, I'm so sure he would. Say. I
1: I rather feel that um, we didn't quite get the best out of Glenn last time, and that was hmm. my fault for not sort of asking him quite the right questions. He's tremendous, tremendous resource, and I'm sure we we can do a podcast with him. Also, um, Kathy Doughty, she's just done some tremendous studies. Um, well, sorry, she's reported on a study she did of TBLT. Mm-hmm. It's, it'll be in the handbook of TBLT, which, um, as you know, we've got a little uh, chapter in. Yep. Well, of course.
0: No. <laughs> um, but anyway, I Kathy's... thought we weren't going to have one for a minute after I got the last email from Mohammed. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, well, we, we've got there. We beat the deadline. Um, but anyway, kathy has got a sort of major chapter in there. And she has uh, said that she'd be quite happy to talk to us about it ah, uh, during the course. Um, so that that would be another a very interesting
0: input. Marvelous. Well, the other thing of course, just to finish this plug (laughs) is, I think we're also spurred on by the participants we get and the last course was quite a small group, but some very dedicated people. And if I can just mention one, Stephen Allen, I'm not mentioning him above the others for any other reason than that he sent us some feedback he recently got from students. So working in companies in Poland, Stephen has tried to adopt TBLT approach and he got some wonderful feedback from students who appreciated the the efforts he was going to, to make the courses relevant to them and focused on their needs. And uh, that was I'm sure very gratifying for him, but gratifying for us as well to think that we kind of hopefully Uh, Had an impact on on the changes he was making to his teaching, so that's great. So hopefully, anyone listening who's kind of interested in this, uh, then you can read Stephen's feedback on the the course page uh, as well as some other people, and um, hopefully that will inspire you to sign up. Yes, it was
1: fantastic to have Stephen, uh, uh, and I think that it's very gratifying to see somebody immediately putting into practice uh, what we were doing in the course and very encouraging that he got such fantastic feedback from his students who really uh, lapped up his his uh, TBLT orientated course, so I think uh, it was really good from two points of view: from the marvellous way that he contributed to the course, but also from the fantastic way that he immediately went out and put it into practice and got such good results.
0: That's it. And just to remind you, you don't all have to be uh, super dedicated to Stephen was <laughs> to do the course. that we have a kind of? lighter approach where you participate, you still you get feedback from us and forum tasks, etc. cetera, but uh, you don't necessarily have to do all the big output tasks. And for some people that suits them better. Maybe people who have got a little less uh, time and or money to invest in a course like ours. So hopefully there are options for everybody. And as you like to say, <laughs> roll up, roll up. <laughs> uh, okay, Good. pleasure to talk to you again, yeah. Jeff.
1: Nice That's talk to you. Take care and uh, keep up with the good
0: work. And now for the second part of the coursebook debate recorded back in May, and we start off by discussing the recent debate on the pages of the English Language Teaching Journal between Jason Anderson and Rod Ellis.
1: Yes, I, I think Jason Anderson is appalling, frankly. Um, I mean it just doesn't make much sense at all. I don't think you know you know, I don't think he reads things carefully enough. I um I don't think it was, in my opinion, a very good uh discussion at all. I mean, I think uh, uh what's his name? Long does a much uh, better job of um, criticising Ellis' version of TBLT.
0: I don't know, Matt, do you know this art, these articles? The No, uh, I've, just, I've just found them um,
3: in the LTJ. I haven't read them.
0: Well, I didn't mean to get into a big dissection of them. It was just one, one point. Hmm. Uh, and also, Nick, I don't know if you've read them either. So this is um, Jason. No, I haven't, sorry. Um, the Tate model. So it's Jason Anderson versus Rod Ellis. I was tempted to call it a tit for Tate exchange. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I thought was interesting in, in relation to course books is that Anderson says that this um, idea that course books follow a, a PPP model is not correct anymore at least. And he says, and I quote, PPP oversimplifies the thematic integrated skills approach generally used today and the potential benefit of pre-analysis exposure to meaningful text that may facilitate receptive acquisition of Lexis grammar effectively. Now it just reminds me a little bit of, now who was it that responded to you again, Jeff? Um, Hughes. Uh, it reminded me of uh, Hugh's response to you, where, again, I don't know if it's a straw man or not, but you characterise coursebooks as following PPP, and she says, no, it's not quite as simple as that. They use they use richer texts, etc., for introduction. So uh, Anderson's position is that, just to confuse this with more acronyms, the mm-hmm. approach followed by most coursebooks today is the CAP or CAPE model. Uh, is that familiar to anyone? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm afraid he, not, no. <laughs> Okay let me just briefly talk you through it then. CAP or CAPE is C for context, context established through a text, listening, reading or video, a situation in classroom or through audio video, visual resources or the involvement of learners. A for analysis, features of the text are noticed and analysed explicitly for meaning, form, pronunciation and usage and then P for guess what, practice and then Possibly E for evaluation. Now, according to Anderson, this is this more accurately reflects what happens in course books these days. But I always think that this is still PPP. I don't know what you think. PPP is sometimes characterized as this. You just present the structure. Here's the present perfect. Here's the second conditional. Here's a model sentence. Here's some controlled practice. And here's some freer practice. But I was trained to use PPP in precisely this way, you did still introduce the target structure a little bit more contextually. There might be a reading or a listening in which you know that structure is kind of seeded. Then you kind of pull it out and then you go ahead and practice it. I just wanted to know if that's something familiar to you. Has Have course books advanced in the kind of methodology they use to present grammar, albeit still synthetically?
1: So this is... Um situational approach, which was um, started in the 1960s. It's quite right to say it's not exactly the presentation of a structure, you know, it, it's not the case that course books say, today we're going to do the present perfect, and the present perfect is formed like this, using the auxiliary verb have and the past part, it doesn't do that, it, it, uh, it's a situational approach. Um, which was um, started in uh, International House and was the basis for Headway, um, the first real, you know, huge, successful course book. And there, you you start with the situation. John's in his house and so on. Um, He's having his... And and what's happening is through the situation, um, you uh, illustrate... The, the the structure that you want to concentrate on in context. So um, if it's, um, I remember one that was, um, oh, it's too heavy for me to pick up. It's too high to reach. She's too old to know that. She's too young to, that structure. So it's always, every structure, present perfect, <laughs> verb, type, whatever it is, is contextualized, it's, it's situational. And that's the model I think that most course books still adhere to. So you get a, you, you get a preliminary thing, a situation, and that situation normally is used to uh, highlight a particular grammar point, which then uh, receives um, explicit attention in grammar boxes and, and uh, capital exercises and so on. Um, and then there is, of course, uh, some skills development and some opportunities uh, for people to talk uh, hopefully using that structure, but you know sort of more or less openly that 's my understanding of and i and I think to, to the extent that if in my article I said uh, course books today follow a strict pPP uh, formula, then I, I, I think he's quite right to criticise that and say, no, they don't. They, they, they normally begin with some uh, contextualization, uh, which is the situational approach. Nick, you've
0: got your could hand you, up. Yeah, please Yeah, go. Sorry,
2: could, could I respond to that? Cause I, 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 I've got a slightly different view from Jeff's in, in some ways because um, I've, I've been doing um, some research in history of language learning and teaching and The situational approach, um, I think it was definitely something that was used uh, in International House, but it wasn't generated there. It actually goes back um, much further to um, people in the Institute of Education, for example, or, or certainly in Britain. It was also widely used in Australia for migrant English, like after World War II. But the situation approached kind of people like P.W. Gurry and H.A. Cartledge, who were, these were kind of guys that were around in the 1940s and 50s, and they were original contributors to the English Language Teaching Journal when it first came out. And they were often, they were creating um, materials explicitly designed for the teaching in colonial areas, like, you know, like sort of um, colonial Nigeria, colonial Ghana, uh, Malaysia, and so on and so on. And so uh, I, I think what what happened in terms of international house because it kind of evolved organically. They they didn't push forward an approach as such as in they just kind of had a melange, if you like, of approaches that then came together. So I agree absolutely with Jeff that they they adopted what is in effect a situational approach. But I I, I think I'm right in saying that they didn't. They might have popularised it, but they certainly didn't um um create it. In response to the question about the CAP model uh, and the difference between the CAP and situational, is I think the real difference is perhaps the situational approach was more commonly associated with sentence-level grammar, whereas the, the CAP or CAPE approach that you've just said that Jer- uh, Jason Anderson um, kind of pointed out, I think the, the, the real difference is that they are more or less the same, except that the, rather than having a, a single sentence with a structure as an input, much as you had in, like you know, right up to sort of the seventies, like if you think of course books like Streamlines, like Peter Viney, uh, which was very much based around teaching, you know, just the present simple, just the present perfect, and 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 so on and so on. But I think so so much more. It's much more likely to get you will get a whole newspaper article, or you will get a whole listening. Um, so they've extended it into the. It's the same kind of idea, but just extended. Into longer stretches of of discourse and I think maybe um, Matt if you because I remember last week you actually said one of the things that you said was good about course books these days was actually the 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 textual input and by text I assumed you meant both reading and and listening.
3: I think it's one thing that can be good because I I think um, I agree with what you said there Nick you get language presented through text rather than in terms of single sentences Mm. But I think sometimes context, I I quite like the sound of the CAP model, but I don't think, Mm. in general, coursebooks and teachers tend to make a hash of context. I don't think teachers generally understand. They probably don't have a very clear understanding of the different factors that potentially make up a context, and they're not Uh, helped by coursebooks.
2: Can I ask what you mean by that? I'm I'm really interested what you...
3: I I think there's there's an article somewhere by Halliday, and he kind of outlines context in terms Mm. of... Um, field, tenor, and mode um, mm-hmm. so you 're talking about the the topic um, the people involved in the in the interaction uh, whether they're uh, speaking whether they 're writing um, and and those two kind of overlap so you might have texts that are written and then designed to be spoken, or um, you might have something like a whatsapp chat which takes on features of spoken language, even though it 's written uh, so th- there are these kind of various aspects of. Of context And generally, you do see books trying to present language as though it's from a, a newspaper or, or whatever. But generally, I think many of them kind of, it ends up being presented as a generic website or a generic magazine article. And there's no real, there's not a very clear sense of context behind it. So in, in that sense, there's there's the same kind of uh, weaknesses to text like that, that original kind of situational approach with its single sentences had that, You've got this fairly flimsy contextual background. It's, it's, I think that it's still the language that's, that has been the main focus. Mm. Yeah.
0: This brings me back to a point I wanted to discuss earlier. This, one of Long's methodological principles, which you might be aware of, these, has these 10 mm. methodological principles for language teaching in general, not just for task-based language teaching, but things that he thinks are uh, very important to any kind of approach to language teaching. And one of them is to provide rich input. And I think when Long says rich input, what he means is input that's kind of domain specific and task specific, not just that it's not simplified input. So that's one issue we sometimes have with course books that the input is simplified, especially at lower levels, but that also that it's kind of suited to the context or the domain in which students might need to use it. So that's one thing I wanted to ask. I mean, it seems like Matt, from your answer there, Maybe you're not too convinced that course books are providing that kind of rich input
3: maybe the problem's with the definition of what's rich input I think rich input should be clearly contextualized. I think there should be clear communicative purpose to the language that students are presented with but i, I don't actually have a problem with it being simplified. I think um, maybe I, I don't know you know back in the day before the days of the internet, maybe there was more of a responsibility on course books to provide students with the full range of L2 input that they would receive mm. um, and I'm not sure that's necessary anymore you know if you're a student learning English you don't need your coursebook to provide you with all the all the input that you get and in fact you, know, you could argue that a more focused form of input is what you want from your course you want your language learning materials to help you make sense of you know all the input that's available to you at the click of a button um, so I don't have a problem with s- simplifying the input but I suppose what I mean when I say simplify is simplifying it in terms of, in terms of form and maybe lexical range, range and things like that, but not simplifying it in terms of the contextual background and the communicative context.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's interesting here, <clears throat> again, uh, Longs, uh, I think, makes a very interesting point where he talks about imp- input simplification and input elaboration. And he talks about genuineness, which is sort of Widdowson's term for authenticity. Or Widdowson says, you know, what, what does authentic mean? Uh, um, you know, even if it does that, what what we tend to refer to as authentic texts are texts written for native speakers. So, but that doesn't make them authentic. So he prefers the term genuine. In any case, um, we we could, we understand what we if we if we say authentic text we mean. For example, a newspaper article taken directly from, uh, you know, the the, the Daily Telegraph or something, or um, a recording taken directly from, um, you know, a film or a TV thing. So what Long says is, well, it's absolutely um, inappropriate to expect uh, beginners to, to to follow authentic, genuine text. its just far too difficult. They, they, you know, ninety-nine percent of that material is just not appropriate. Um, but the problem with the simplification of it that goes on in textbook is that it's just so wooden and so, as you say, Matthew, uh, you know, to you get the context all wrong. You get, for example, um, spoken things that are actually written, you know, so they're just people speaking a written text. That's the kind of awful sort of stuff that, uh, I mean, really, if you think about spoken language, you know, false starts, interruptions, overlaps, reliance on the here and now, redundant, all that's the kind of stuff that you would you would get in any genuine um, or uh, spoken text. And and what, too often, course books have a spoken uh, text that is, in fact, just somebody reading a written that sort of thing. Um, so Long says, um, of course, it's not fair to um, ask real beginners or, or people with a low proficiency um, uh, to listen to or to read uh, genuine texts that come from, let's say, The Telegraph or from uh, from, a, from a Hollywood film. What you need, he says, is what he calls input elaboration. And elaboration, he, he, he distinguishes between elaboration and simplification. And the idea of elaboration... Is to involve lots of redundancy and regularity in the text. So to deliberately um, uh, have lot, you know, the, the the same thing said over and over again, as as one does in uh, often in, in spoken discourse. Anyway, there's a lot of redundancy. But that kind of thing, he says, his uh, I can't, I haven't got it in front of me now. But the bit that he talks about elaboration. Um, he talks about paco sentences, where there are there's the genuine, the simplified version, an elaborated version, and a modified elaborated version. Um, with uh, and he um, recommends the use of elaborated and modified elaborated. Modified elaborated means when you give a, a, a disclos. So here's here, I found one the paco sentences, a uh, genuine sentence uh, a native speaker the native speaker because he had to work at night to provide for his family Paco often fell asleep in class so that's the genuine version the simplified version from a course book is Paco had to make money for his family Paco worked at night Paco often went to sleep in class that's a simplified version the elaborated version is, Paco had to work at night to earn money to provide for his family, so he often fell asleep in class next day during his teacher's lesson. So there's, there's kind of an explanation of what the words mean in there uh, and, and a certain amount of redundancy. And the modified elaborated version is, is, that Paco had to work at night to earn money to provide for, and this provide for is in um, bold type. And there is a gloss for it saying, provide for means blah, blah. So that would be the modified version where you actually single out the things that you think uh, might provide. So anyway, um, the point here is to to insist on the use of uh, authentic materials or genuine materials as Longman-Whitteson want to call them. Seems to me completely, and I, I mean, I you know, just unfair to beginners. And the complaint that is often made, uh, including I, I thought Nick had a very good defence of that, when his uh, reply to me saying I was far too uh, broad brushstrokes about the the awfulness of um, the text, and there, there certainly are some, you know, much better than I allowed for, but. I, I don't think it's unfair to say that course books very often either succumb to the kind of lack of proper context that Matt was talking about, or do use very um, stilted, uh, careful sort of language. And I think uh, Long's suggestion of elaborated input for lower levels is, is, is one
0: really worth paying attention to. Can I just come in and clarify the modified bit? Because I think you're right. Modified might mean putting a gloss on something or having a little multi-choice thing, but it also means shortening sentences because if you add in a lot of paraphrase, what was it, Paco? Paco had to work at night to
1: earn money to provide for his family. Right,
0: so the first one is provide for his family, but in this one it's he had to work at night to earn money to provide for his family. This is the redundancy, right? The the repetition of earning money and provide for... Right. and this is this is a, obviously this is designed to help students pick up language and mm-hmm. notice things without simplifying it, but obviously the more you elaborate, the longer sentences get yes. and that that uh, increases the challenge of reading them so I think okay. another another aspect of the modification is then to take that elaborated text and simplify it in terms of st- sentence structure slightly not not in terms of language necessarily but um I guess my point about this is it, because course books have this. Most of them, in a way, they're designed for this very general audience. Does that make it impossible to get the rich input that as long describes it, even if they elaborated their texts and and didn't simplify them too much? You wouldn't be knowing who your students particularly were or what reason they needed to use the language for, and therefore you're kind of getting very generic examples of uh, language use rather than rich ones. Nick, you want to come in?
2: yeah just actually there was something I was thinking about that was as Jeff was giving that description and just generally these kind of issues about authenticity, which um what I think is interesting is a lot of course books going back to the Jason anderson uh, paper with and cap is a lot of course books especially kind of like from the 90s they were trying to follow that that idea of more authentic so it's inter- or I find it interesting that the kind of um uh, modified text that Jeff's just read out. That was exactly the kind of text that was, would have been quite common in a lot of kind of books up until about the 1960s, kind of exactly the kind of readers that I was describing earlier. In fact, sorry, if, I could, if, if you don't mind, just a short digression just for a minute. No, please. Um, do, you know, do you know everyone as kind of teachers, um, you know how in a lot of places you're told when you correct a bit of students' writing, Mm. there's this idea of putting s for spelling v for vocabulary g for grammar you know these kind of like symbols that you write within the text yeah
0: yeah.
2: okay well with that that actually that goes back to this guy horace cartledge i think he first proposed that sometime in the sort of 1940s or it might have been used before that but he was the first one to kind of do it and I don't know about you, but as a practicing teacher with anyone who's from about intermediate level above or even lower, sometimes it causes you a real headache. Like, is this a gra- is it, am I going to write G here or V, or do I write G and V? I mean, I'm assuming you you've been through. Everyone here has been through this this kind of experience of going. I, oh, yeah. Actually, I don't know. Qu- I, I, I'm not sure. How do I actually evaluate this? Well, when it went back, I found that originally it was, it was part of a course book that cartilage had written with someone else um, intended for African learners, specifically in Nigeria. And in those times, each it basically you had a page of text and that text was exa- almost exactly the description that gestures just given of modified. It was, it was heavily focused on a particular structure and then students had to write the kind of, you know, like reformulate their own version of a similar text using those structures. So in other words, when the tutor was marking that homework, they could actually put GV directly because both they and the learner knew exactly which grammar structure was being referred to. And so when, it, when they said vocabulary, this is definitely a vocabulary error. This is not a kind of grammar error because we know that we're working within a very limited this is just a text that is focused on you producing, for example present continuous or present progressive, what are you want to call it. Whereas much later, you know, following the kind of communication, lang- uh, communicative language teaching kind of thing, we're asking students to write dynamic, interactive, interpersonal relationships in their kind of letters. You know, if you take sort of a letter written for pet or first certificate, for example, they are actually kind of doing a written role play with someone. And so trying to evaluate that, that type of text at that kind of level at B1 and B2 and above it it actually makes that nearly kind of it makes that it, it makes that very difficult to do. It's like which part am I underlining? How do I know it's a grammar error, not a vocabulary error? And where actually does grammar stop and vocabulary begin when you're using that kind of you know, G V S T you know, kind of coding system that I that I I'm, I'm assume all of us here at some point have been introduced to and probably used at some point in our teaching careers and may even still know people who who still use that specific correction kind of feedback technique. Mm. Um, and I just feel it no longer applies. The reason why, sorry, that was a slight digression. But what reminded me mainly was was how I think part of the reason why that kind of situational approach got adapted from the single sentences into a whole text was precisely, um, I suppose, uh, part of the input that was coming from what Matt was saying earlier is that there was no context to these kind of sentences, or when there were context to those sentences, it, it was it was it was very obviously artificial, like. Um, This is quite a long time ago now, but Ron Carter and Mike McCarthy, I guess, oh, well, actually, Matt will definitely know. When they were producing articles based on the CAM code, you know, this Nottingham uh, corpus that was particularly for spoken, the grammar of spoken English. Um, One of the articles they pointed out, uh, this was an ELTJ one from quite a long time ago. It had a, a dialogue that they'd recorded in a hairdresser's in Nottingham And then they put it side by side with a dialogue about a woman and a hairdresser taken from Streamlines, uh, like this course book from the 1970s. And the Streamlines course book dialogue went something like this. "Can, uh, Can you tell me what your husband does? Yes, I can. Can you tell me what your husband does? No, I can't. Can he do? You know, you you get the you're right. Okay, then they compared it to the one in Nottingham. It was like, oh, you are right. Yeah, it's, oh, it's straggly. Oh, you've got very straggly, striggly bits of hair, aren't you? It's all higgledy piggledy. And it was just this kind of phonetic jumble of of just nonsense words, essentially of the real thing. And then basically they were talking about this leaves us with the problem of if, you know for course book writing material writing and. And actually just language teaching in general how do you find like this happy medium between you know actual live discourse in these particular places like you know this hairdressers in Nottingham on the one hand and then on the other hand how do you how do you at least try and give it more more kind of uh, well, I guess what Matt was saying about context, kind of introducing those kind of ideas of field, tenor mode, like has it got an actual interactive purpose? Does it recognizably belong to a kind of genre of English as opposed to bleeding out all of the kind of discursal and and generic features that you would normally get in a kind of text? And I I still think that is a problem for coursebooks and almost in a way... For TBLT at the lower level, like if you remember, like one of the examples that Mike Long gives in that book for a very, very low level lesson, is the thing where it's just drawing shapes on the board, mm. and it's just teaching them that. I mean, I mean, there's, I, I think there's a very good, I, well, clearly there's a very good reason for doing that, but I think to a lot of, I think to a lot of people they may be surprised that that is a, a low level lesson as opposed to "Hello, my name is. What's your name?" Mm. You know. By the way, I'm not suggesting that Mike Long suggests you shouldn't do that as well, but I'm just saying that that. In the book he does talk about like geometric shapes. Part of the thing about like input at lower levels in particular is that like actually just setting a task that has language that students can do, even if so the task may seem artificial from a from a communicative or let's say authentic real world point of view, but from an actual task in the classroom as real people interacting like you know with objects although it does sound it's it, described like that it does it does sound strongly reminiscent of um a burlitz kind of approach actually you know this is a pen here is the pen what is the i mean which is not what long is describing obviously but i mean but um but something doing some kind of like i don't know like a jigsaw puzzle or yeah. something like that which is People can interact, but also speak, and there are clear instructions going on and so on. That
1: yeah,
0: I know, I know the one you mean, uh, Nick, uh, and I think it's, from Long's perspective, it's still derived from a target task that might be to locate an object that you're trying to get in a shop, for example, and to be able to kind of roughly describe the shape and size of things and, and where they are relative to each other. And I think it's just an example from Long of how you might really simplify a task for, for, for lower levels and uh, you know I, I agree with you it does kind of come across as strange but it's something i've done quite successfully with beginner learners um building up to having them do something that might seem a bit more lifelike realistic like a kind of role play when you try to oh yes um, so, sorry
2: i mean just to be clear i wasn't cri- i wasn't criticizing no no, no, no i know
0: i know but i was just uh, yeah well,
1: I know. I think makes a really good point Is that you know that I mean the, the stark difference between streamlined uh, treatment of going to the hairdresser and recording the real thing. I mean that's a, <laughs> a streamlined absurd like that, isn't it? Each one that everybody's talking in present perfect, and then everybody's. So, so I mean, but anyway, I think you're quite right, Nick. To, you know, it's uh, a problem for any materials writer, including TBLT is to get the balance right. You can't go anywhere near the real thing. I mean, I think hairdressing is a, a very good example of, of the kind of mad stuff that you, you would actually get with discourse if you recorded it. Long uh, had one thing when he, quite early on, in, uh, I think uh, when he was doing his PhD, he actually went and recorded in three different train stations, I think in the United States, uh, conversations between people buying tickets and a ticket uh, seller. And there he, he said, you know, what well, all, I mean, he had, I think, more than 50, you know, or maybe more than 100 of these small exchanges and absolutely nobody said anything like what you get in a. You know, nobody said, uh, "Good morning, can I have a ticket for and how much?" I? I mean, it just didn't happen. There was a. There was this and that and so on. And he himself uh, says, just like as Nick is suggesting, you have to get um, a balance right there so that the, the the text has a minimum amount of coherence and, and, and cohesion. But what's interesting about it is that at least you get the kind of vocabulary and the kind of uh, lexical chunks and so on that are likely to come up in that exchange. Mm -hmm. You might have to rebuild them kind of thing into a more flowing uh, dialogue in that case. But at least by recording it, you do get the actual kind of uh, raw material, if you like. Uh, And and he says the same thing about most of the stuff you get in uh, course books, you know, about an interview or a telephone call or, you know, these are so generic. In fact, a a telephone call to whom? You know, on what's the kind, uh, a telephone call, it's just apart from, you know, the way the the British English say whatever it is they say and the Spanish say Tigo and we say and so on. Uh, But, Unless you get the real genuine communicative, uh, unless you have some idea what it is, then it's it's not surprising that course books so often come out with unrealistic, stilted, and and as another point Gong makes about it, of course, it's impoverished in the sense that it's not very challenging. It's too, uh, it's thin soup. And and what he says very often about the elaborated uh, and modified elaborated input is that you don't take out, you don't take out everything that you fear they might not know. What you do is you, you put extra stuff in there to help them, learn, you know, redundant, repeat it and, 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 and modify the sentences and so on. So that's... A, the, the, one of the biggest problems with simplified uh, materials is is the impoverishment that, that you, you just take out. Oh, this is too difficult for them. They won't get that. You know, so you're sort of stripping it and and taking all the nutrition out of it. You know, like English people cooking vegetables. You know. <laughs> 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 um, so, I, I, you know, I, I think Nick's absolutely right. You have to find a balance between the real, you know, kind of discourse chaos that goes on in the hairdressers and, and, and streamline on the one hand. Uh, but um, at least if you do a bit of research, like, and Long's tremendous on this, so the needs analysis, you do get better raw material on which to, to, to build more structured
3: um, texts. So I was just gonna say there's a fine balance because I think um uh, obviously now in the days of um of Corpora and and I can't speak for other publishers, but I know that Cambridge has a huge corpus that it, that is used to inform the materials that it produces. So I've got I've got a quite a new book just in front of me, actually. It's called Open World. And there is um, the topic here is um dealing with well, the title of the page is dealing with money in Stockholm. Um and you've got sentences like, Can I use contactless Mm. You'll have to turn your card around. There was a problem with the payment. Card machine's ready for you now. Sorry. So I think materials writers are, are, do a better job now of uh, of looking at how language is used and then trying to to replicate that. But what's what's difficult to do if you go back to the hairdresser's example is to decide what you know as part of that exchange. What is authentic and can be uh, can be adopted by learners, and how much of it is very, very closely tied to identity and, you know, you know your identity as, as somebody from Nottingham or how much of it is very closely tied to the shared knowledge of the people in that situation?
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, if just if I could just say this, I mean, if, if, if we're going to take a, a TBLT approach <laughs> and you're training people to be hairdressers in Nottingham, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think this is where we've got this contrast between an approach which it might be accused of being too specific in a way that uh, if if that's your target audience or target students and and you know what their needs are and they're going to work in that environment, then of course you're going to record dialogues from hairdressers in Nottingham and you're going to try to identify the most, Uh, but that probably isn't going to help you much if you're training hairdressers in Mumbai or Glasgow or Barcelona, you know. Um, So I guess we've got this tension between this general, these course with a very general audience and an approach which gets quite specific and focused in I, I want to move on a little bit but Nick you've got your hand up do you want to come in on that oh yeah sorry just
2: just very quickly by the way I laughed out loud when Jeff said the thing about the generic phone call because that is so true that is absolutely brilliant they're like it's just a phone call it's not a phone call from someone to <laughs> someone for a particular purpose and um, and yeah absolutely the thing about the, the specialism for, um, you know, uh, if you're training hairdressers in Nottingham, then probably that is a good uh, uh, technique. But um, sorry, yeah, one thing I just wanted to come back on is, is is a slight defense of course books at lower levels. And it's probably not much of a defense, but I feel like we've kind of been agreeing in some way. So just kind of put it from the other side. With those kind of simple sentences, I think in some ways, at whatever the negative forms of them are like you know the the jeff read out the simplified version about you know it's like paco works hard paco does this for his family paco you know like very short single clause sort of sentences and one possible advantage for that is especially at a lower level and especially if you have a teacher who speaks english with students but does not speak the same language as the students that they're teaching um is that there's a kind of comfort blanket effect in that it's written down and it's not spoken and i think some of the things that um and i think this is goes through elt in, in many places it's like d uh, and it has done for quite a long time which is um the tension between teaching the spoken language as the real or the quote-unquote authentic language is is when spoken conversation and then actually having it written down and i think especially any any student that comes from a kind of script Uh, a literate culture, is going to want to see it sort of visualized and written down. And if the language that you are presenting to them orally is actually more complex in a sense when it's written down, that might lead into all kinds of, of difficulties. So I think in some ways, it is something that the learner can take away out of the classroom with them as a record and i think it might be harder if you're if you're using other forms because i think the problem is once it's all, all very well if you teach a chunk orally and they learn that chunk orally but if you if you then teach it and then at some point during the lesson they then write those down they might actually go away with more questions than than you can answer and it might actually lead it to confusion if they've got sort of sentences that are actually unfamiliar or chunks of of bits that make use of grammar that is perhaps complex at that level. So, you know, I don't know how valid that is, but I was just thinking, you know, I do think sometimes that we forget that the learners actually do determine to some degree the kind of teaching that happens in the room. And as we all know, like, you know, 99.9% of your learners are not linguists, obviously. And so they come with a a very orthodox traditional view of what a language is, Mm. uh, what a foreign language is, and what it means to learn and use and speak a language. And I think to some extent, the simplified sentences does kind of accommodate those kind of learner beliefs or what might be better said as learner myths about about what, what their own language is and what a foreign language is.
0: No, it's, it's an interesting point. I always think there's another disconnect though when, when they're just exposed to this simplified uh, language and then, and then they're in the real world, yeah. the, the gap. Yeah. And especially if you're teaching, you know, when you're teaching students in an English-speaking mm-hmm. country, uh, immigrants mm-hmm. or asylum seekers or whatever, there's always that problem. I uh, had that problem in Glasgow teaching asylum seekers, of course, because there wasn't much Glaswegian mm. in the course books. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, not even Seamus McSporin was from Glasgow. <laughs> get back to, get back to yeah, I, I, I wanted to, to see if we can get this onto teacher training, though, because it strikes me, and this this is a lot to do with my own experience. of being trained, uh, thinking of my CELTA, which was round about the year 2000, 2001, I can't remember <laughs> exactly which year it was. Um, it may have may have progressed a lot, and of course CELTAs vary a lot. I know, Nick, that you train on uh, the Trinity version, and I've done the same. But my point is about, um, okay, maybe you have course books that use, uh, let's not say rich texts as input, but relatively rich, they're not completely simplified. But when the structure is this, if it's whether we call it PPP or the cap or or TET or whatever we like, when when the uh, approach is synthetic and the next step after looking at the input is analyzing it um, for the form, meaning and pronunciation of certain structure or structures, sometimes not always just one, it seems to me that maybe the maybe the soup is quite nutritious, Jeff, but we're throwing out all the veg, <laughs> and we're just looking at some of the stringy bits that you kind know, of make make sense. Now, obviously, that's just one approach to teacher training, but I wanted to get some perspectives on that because that was literally the way that I was trained. You might have a text that we use as input to then mine for for the structure you're going to teach that day, and it seems to me whatever benefits it might it, there might have been for the learners to look at something quite rich and maybe they're going to acquire some stuff incidentally looking at a text like that. That was all kind of like, I don't know, funneled out when it came to looking at the structure and when we started to focus in on the, the practice part of the... Just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Is that a caricature of, of teacher training these days? Does that kind of thing still happen? Matt, maybe you want to. You you do a lot of training. Yeah,
3: um, I, I guess I, I suppose course books don't do a very good job of making the connection between what's happening in the texts in terms of lexico grammar and, and the context that is supposed to be there. So um, I, I know a lot of teachers develop their language awareness through the course books they use. And so they, they kind of, conceptualize language in terms of the grammar McNuggets that they have taught you know, in the, in the course of their teaching career. And that makes it difficult, I think, for them to... I think you end up with a lot of teachers in a situation who who can teach those particular forms very well because they've done it very often. But perhaps if you gave them a more genuine text or more authentic text and asked them to, to point out the, the most salient features of that text, I'm not sure that many of them would be able to pick out... Uh, features of language that don't fall within one of those categories um, and so the course books generally don't do a great job of of helping to I suppose they're a bit like a bit like heroin in the sense that they kind of get teachers addicted to this this view of language and don't help to wean them off it and so and you know in an ideal world it, I think it'd be great if course books develop teachers language awareness as they you know, as they were used more, but that's probably not what happens. you get you end up with a a particular view of language, and it it means that teachers then find it rather difficult to to take language from the wild and and work with it in a way that hasn't been kind of predetermined that
0: Sure, well I suppose my point was not so much about the course books but, but about the way that we're trained to use them because uh, it's like you say maybe maybe the maybe the course books are like a gateway drug into, I don't know, you start off uh, being able to teach uh, third person S and then by the time you're doing the third conditional, <laughs> there's, there's no way back, you know, that, that that's you uh, hooked as you say, but I suppose my point is that maybe course books don't always ram that structural approach down your throat, you know, sometimes it's tucked away at the back, I'm thinking English file, you know, the, all the Practice stuff, you, you, could, you could take quite a different approach with it. Um, I guess my question is more about the way that we're training teachers to use these resources. Um, Nick, on your CERT TESOL, what's the approach? Are, are trainees using course books? Are they uh, encouraged to deviate? Uh, what are they doing with language?
2: New York, um, no, I, I mean, firstly, I should say, I mean, I'm involved with the Trinity Seas but I'm not a trainer on it. But uh, it's my colleagues, uh, okay. Rebecca, Jill, and uh, Felicity, do that. But, um, no, what, what they do is because they the trainee students are assigned in pairs to a tutor who are on one of our courses, so it's it's um, it's the material has been already created in house mm-hmm. by our own tutors, so it's actually, I, I feel sometimes I feel sorry for them because it is it is actually a real challenge for them in some cases because uh, especially with some of the English academic purposes stuff because they're only second year undergraduates themselves and actually a lot of them even though they're undergraduates in a university that a lot of them aren't familiar with the, the kind of uh, information that the, you know the kind of skills that are being taught within you know a lot of them don't realise themselves about quite how to use um, APA six referencing conventions I mean just as a you know, a very basic example of that kind of thing. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm not quite sure how to argue that. I mean it's like like for example, I had I had some students where I was actually actually now I think about it, because I felt kind of sorry for them on one of the courses, I actually produced very simple course bookie like materials of exactly the kind of sort of CAP structure that we're talking about just in order to make it easier for the trainees to actually move their way through the units of the lessons that they were teaching. Um, So it wasn't done in a way, and I know, I mean, that might sound a bit hypocritical, but I did feel, I mean, bear in mind these people who've never taught before, they're only sort of 20, 21 years old, and it's like, and suddenly they're being presented with exactly the kind of thing that Matt was just talking about, where, you know, even teachers who've been teaching for a while, like might be a bit stymied when they first get onto their diploma course and they're suddenly looking at text, from, in its discourse sense, rather than just, you know, as he was saying, the kind of Scott Thornbury grammar McNuggets way. So, I mean, I suppose, you know, if, if like, you know, we were talking about teachability and learnability the other week, um, I think, I think probably the same applies for teach trainee. Or the, my feeling is probably the same applies to teach trainees. And so, I think if there is a criticism of teach training, it's perhaps that the courses are, and it has been leveled by quite a few people, as you probably know, Adrian Holiday being, uh, you know, someone who's been quite critical of uh, teach training courses, for example, is, you know, just the 100-hour model is just too short. But then, you know, these are private courses, I think, in a sense that if they were longer, they would be more expensive, and hence you would get fewer people going into the profession. And that wouldn't necessarily be a good thing, I eh?
1: Now, is this new, uh, relatively new, and I'm sure you referred to Adrian Holiday there, um, mm. a sort of new sociocultural perspective on second language teacher education. You know, I mean, we, we, we're talking about teacher education in the CELTA, um, which is very much a sort of um, craft model where you teach them, you know, what to do. Um, you know Wallace's uh, model, a reflective practitioner model, uh, and now uh, everybody. And this is one of the criticisms I have of what I see is the um, the emphasis these days on in uh, teacher training on this sociocultural perspective, where you have to uh, put yourself in the learn in the 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 trainee the the, the, the the teacher who's learning uh, is regarded as um, that's where you should start. So, and, and I'm sure you know all about this, all of you, you must, you know, that you can't, you, you shouldn't treat the teacher as a sort of something you pour knowledge into. Um, you, you start with this, this acronym now is BACS, sort I of think, isn't it? Beliefs, Assumptions, and Knowledge. Uh, I think it was um, Borg. Was it was the first to use that? Anyway, the 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 whole model uh, in this case is to make uh, understanding the, the learn that the teacher, the trainee teacher, um, where that teacher is coming from, uh, is more much more important than uh, teaching them how to. Uh, uh, drill or or, or use uh, listening materials and so on. you know what I mean? So we've gone, we've swung enormously away from the idea of a craft, you know, teaching someone uh, like an apprentice, you know, okay, here's an experienced teacher, watch how he or she does it and, and, and so on, to this new thing where um, awareness of teachers' beliefs, assumptions and knowledge is where you should start from, uh, and the reflection is the kind of key to teacher education. Um, and it does seem to me that it's rather swung too far that way, so that we're, we're not asking teachers about you know, how people learn, not asking them to look at uh, second language acquisition research, not asking them to think about um, how people learn a second language, uh, I'm not asking him to think very much about syllabus design. Um, it just it seems to me a bit too much like sort of navel-gazing, if you like, you know, uh, where I, and, and you get it, I see it a lot in the ia and, and the TESOL special interest groups where everybody's falling over themselves to to try and understand the teacher. To, to try and get behind their beliefs, assumptions, and knowledge and um, and probe, you know, them and, and get them to be talking almost a sort of psychotherapy kind of treatment. I, I'm exaggerating, of course, but <laughs> do, do you know what I mean, Nick? Uh, 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 well, uh, all, uh, Matt and uh, Neil, I know you've all done lots of teacher training, so do you know what my my worry, my my criticism sometimes that I've uh, voiced in the blog about teacher trainers is that, that they focus too much on this introspective, where are you coming from, examine yourself, reflect on your
0: practice, and not enough on content, let's say. Right, but surely, I mean, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I think uh, I'm just thinking of the Trinity Diploma and one of the teaching practice uh, Evaluation points is asking about how your beliefs have changed as the course has gone on or as you've had feedback from your tutor, etc. But you can still be quite prescriptive, right? Because you can ask somebody what they believe or how they believe people learn, and you can say, well, get that out of your system because (laughs) 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 you're wrong. you know, so I suppose it depends uh, It depends how much you're you're taking this. I mean, you can ask people what they believe, I suppose, but then it depends how much you're going to be prescriptive about how you respond
2: to it. Yeah, I think in, in response to Jeff's question, I, I mean, I think, I, I think it's like a lot of things. It's like it starts in a good place and then kind of um, ends up expanding into places that like very few people want it to go and then nobody wants it to go kind of thing. So obviously like reflection is is I, I do think is absolutely essential in teaching yeah. for no other reason than most of the time you won't be observed and really the the one major reason for being observed is just to remind you to to make you self aware to make you self conscious for when the the observer isn't there so that you can learn and that kind of thing but I think uh, you know I think you probably I know you've sometimes had criticism in the past, but I think you're probably familiar with Russ Main's blog um what is it elt
3: evidence-based evidence-based elt sorry because it's
2: skepticism is quite a big feature of it which is right thank you i've, I've forgotten exact. but yeah like you know and i think because there are out there quite a lot of um people in the elt community who are you know i mean kind of uh herbert puch the mario rinvolucri uh others who uh, you know the whole pilgrims kind of um, school and humanistic teaching—that some some of the ideas in there are—they're quite out there, you know. So I mean, if you start with the idea of reflection, that I think is quite sensible. It 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 can quite easily be diverted into kind of things like you know, what color is your mind, or uh, God, you know, the <laughs> bizarre kind of you know, Luzan kind of suggestopedia weirdness, you know,
0: you know the. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but the Rinvalukri one about the students came into the room and there was no teacher there. And they sit sit down around their table and they they start (laughs) chatting. And of course, they start asking each other, Where's the teacher? What's going on? And this voice comes from the cupboard saying, Find the teacher inside yourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, of course, it was Rinvalukri sitting inside the cupboard.
2: Can I I throw in an anecdote about Rimba Please I mean, bless him. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, I've read Grammar Games. I actually think his book on vocabulary activities is really good. I've used that a lot in my book, but I mean, but still, there are these things. Um, A classic one is I had a friend who worked at um, Pilgrims like many, many years ago. And um, uh, apparently, at lunchtime, he, he would teach basically kind of Swedish state school English teachers who would be on a, you know, like a two week or four week Uh, kind of refresher course kind of thing. So, of course, these are Swedish high school teachers. Their level is like beyond C2. You know, it's like, so you can imagine. So So it, it left it open for him to do all kinds of things. Well, anyway, apparently, it regularly, you know, once a week, he would kind of email people and like, this is what I did in my class today. Why don't you do this? And the one that he'd suggested that day was that he'd asked them to do a writing exercise in which they imagined themselves as a leaf on a tree. And they had to write a letter as the leaf to the tree and explain their feelings <laughs> about the tree from the perspective of a leaf. And you just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, blessing, but you <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> in lots of ways. I loved it. I thought he was I
1: mean, yeah, he was right over the top, but um in many ways he was marvellous or oh, Mario.
0: Well I think it's great. Um, yeah, we were talking about Headway, um and the kind of eccentricities of having this again we mentioned Seamus McSporrin or or <laughs> Ro- Roger the Gardener. And <laughs> I think I, I'm a big fan of the grammar games books by Rinbull Lucree. And I think they're mm-hmm. uh, maybe the ELT world misses some of that uh uh, mm. eccentricity because obviously you're not going to do you're not going to get your students to imagine their leaves <laughs> writing to them. who knows you will. <laughs> um, but there were some other kind of less loopy things in there that were still very interesting and coming out coming out the thing from a different perspective that Definitely. Uh, well,
2: I, th- I think Scott Thornbury's dogma was a way of trying to not not explicitly but trying to reintroduce that kind of um, or that—that that was my feeling. I felt when I, when I read, certainly when I read his book by him and Luke Meddings that was trying to present these are kind of dogmy activities. A lot of those were, you know, they were essentially in the in that spirit. I felt.
1: Yes, I think. Anyway, I, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, they obviously Scott was knew Mario, um, and I think he might even have done a couple of summers there at Pilgrims. But yes, I, I think it, it, uh, you know. It smacks of that kind, and and very you know humanistic uh, and and so on. I mean, we it, it's easy to laugh at some of Mario's more bizarre things, like <laughs> hiding in a cupboard or whatever. But um, a lot of what he did was was good, and I and I think you're right, Nick. I think uh, Dogme was you know trying to <laughs> hark back to that kind of philosophy, or you know that way of looking at a humanistic uh, teaching.
0: Let's see if we can bring this together. Sorry if we've gone over time. Please let me know if you, don't, if you can't stick around for five or so more minutes. But maybe speaking of leaves and trees, <laughs> I, guess, I guess my last question is, we have people uh, like Jeff, like myself, like Scott Thornbury, and others who, who criticise course books, some more vehemently than others, and um, When it comes to, like, sometimes the social media debates, the Twitter things, we always seem to end up not convincing anyone very much, or it seems to be a kind of zero-sum game, and and I sometimes wonder whether it's because it's not coursebooks as such. It's the I mean, it's a kind of ecosystem, isn't there? We've talked about teacher training, we've talked about coursebooks, we've talked about publishers, we've talked about examinations and, for example, national curricula in different countries, which determine what goes into the coursebooks. Is it pointless to attack course books or should we, should we be coming at it from a, a I guess I get a more global perspective, looking at how all these kind of things fit together? Or <laughs> does that mean that we're always going to be fighting against something that's just too big to, to get a perspective on? Maybe Jeff, I'll start with you because um, I know you defend and, and you're perfectly within your rights to, to single out course books and, and criticise them, but I'm just wondering what you think whether we miss something by doing that. A lot of people say, well, it's not the course book, it's
1: um, you know, something the course book's just as a sort of symptom. The reason I uh, go on so much about course books I do think they're a very central pillar to this ecosystem you refer to. But of course, on the other hand, I I completely agree that course books are just one reflection of the global ELT uh, business and that that's really uh the, the 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 core of the problem um and that the only real solution is um armed revolution <laughs> 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 from the lamppost outside number 10 um no seriously uh i in the end it, it does boil down to to that i think but i think um elt is part uh, of a neoliberal uh, global capitalism. And, uh, but as you say, if you do that, you, 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 you think um, apart from joining an anarchist uh, group or, or the Labour Party, whatever you want, what do you actually do? How do you make any uh, changes occur? So I concentrate on the course book and I say that I think this course book, course book driven ELT, uh, is that it represents the commodification of education and it's inefficacious and um, it's part of this, as you say, this ecosystem of exams and training and, and the rest of it. My view is that the the best way to combat it is uh, first to get people talking about it, to at least question it a little bit. Um, secondly, perhaps, uh, as we've done a bit, Neil, in our TBLT course, to to suggest ways that you can not exactly sabotage it, but at least work around it. You know, to, to uh, as I said, start at the back of the unit, not uh, things like that. And the third and very important thing for me, and I'm sure you'll agree, Neil, is um, local bottom-up movement. Is what we really, you know, to try and uh, do something locally. Find find a few colleagues who are like-minded that you can
0: work with. Um, and, and push for change that way. Look, can I just ask Matt and Nick, I mean, maybe you're not <laughs> so interested in pushing for change. I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you want to change ELT, where do we start? Do we start with course books? Do we start somewhere else? Matt, what, what would your perspective be on that? Uh,
3: I would say uh, I do think course books are a kind of a symptom. And I think the, the problem is a, a, probably a lack of investment in teacher training. And I, I don't know if it's a neoliberal thing, I suppose on the, if you look at CELTA and Delta, then there's a kind of profit motive there, and those courses are basically far too short in order to to really equip teachers with the skills that they need. Um, but then, if you look at state school teachers, there's just there's a reluctance to invest any money in training state school teachers, yeah. um, whether that's in terms of paying for trainers or giving them time off teaching yeah. to attend training and things like that. And I think that kind of reluctance to to provide teachers with uh, with genuine training means that the course book is there to act as a kind of, it's a support, it's a, it's a crutch. And for many teachers, if you took it away, like any crutch, they'd, they'd fall over or they'd end up hobbling along. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I kind of think it's a, teacher training is the, the only solution, but there's um, somebody, it has to be paid for. Someone going yeah. stump I, up the money for it. And we get to this vicious, vicious, vicious circle thing where,
0: the course book becomes an excuse for not investing in the teacher training in a sense, because if it's there, then, yeah, sorry. Anyway, Nick, what about you? I mean, where do we, um, how do we come at it if we want to improve things? I, I actually, I, I, ironically, I think in some ways I
2: agree uh, with what, a, a lot of what Jeff was saying, especially that part about working from the bottom up. I, th- I think the, the, the problem with attacking the whole of the ecosystem through as you put it through course books is that um it gives it you know it's all about structure and there's no agency involved anywhere there's no kind of freedom of movement for the teacher which which of course is there and i think it's it's too pessimistic a vision whereas actually i think it's not such a big big issue actually it's like you know to a large extent you and your learners can determine the way that 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 course book is used and that class moves, including like using it very little or completely transforming it. I I mean, I'm very much in favor of this idea of trans, if you do have a course book that you transform it with your learners for the purposes that you want to do it, which, I mean, which will vary depending on context. But And I think it's for that reason that I often don't feel such this same kind of animosity that I think some because some people, you know, I, I'm not really on Twitter, but um, but I've seen it at conferences and stuff. Some people, you know, like they seem to reserve quite a lot of intense bile for course books, and you just think, God, why? I, ju- I, you know, and I, and I think you're right, there probably is a bit of you know, there's a secret desire for an armed revolution at the back of it, as uh, you know, as Jeff was saying. So in terms of improving things, I, th- I think really it's just I think it's just getting it out there that you you know that you you're not by and well I mean it depends on the school that you work for but by and large you are not stuck to following the, the you know the rails that you can you know you can do all kinds of things with. With that book, with that content, that goes way outside of what it was intended for, in a sense. So you make it. It's you know, it's you are the master of it rather than the other way round. And I'm not sure that teach training would make that difference necessarily. Rather than, I mean, teacher education, yes, teacher education or teacher development, but not necessarily teach training in terms of a formalized, organized course.
0: Well, Neil, what about you? Fucking burn the books. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, I I think what I'm tired of, uh, to be quite honest, are these debates that go nowhere and, and think people are quite entrenched in their positions on course books. I, I feel for a lot of teachers who don't have the time to develop courses beyond the course book. I think a lot of them, as Nick points out, do have the freedom to use that book in a... In a different way with their classes but I think it depends a lot on the institution as I keep saying I think we really lack research into knowing to what extent teachers have that freedom and where they have that freedom and where they where they don't because I think I do know a lot of people who don't and that it literally is someone looking over their shoulder or looking through the window of their classroom to make sure that they're on page 42 section b when they're supposed to be Um, so I think we need maybe to to advance this we need more information don't we we need to know What's going on? And I would really like to know, with all these CELTAs and Trinity certs around the world, uh, how many of them are just training teachers to turn to page thirty-two, section B, and uh, go through it as it's as it's laid out. How many of them are setting up teachers to kind of adapt more to what their students need, and how many of them are in fact um, trying a different path? Because I think we know one or two they are that they're saying, uh, "Let's have a course book-free kind of CELTA, looking at more." analytic approaches and perhaps uh, task-based type approaches as well is possible although I mm-hmm. think challenging so my view is I think if we're really going to advance this uh, debate I think we need more information to know what's going on and then that would, uh, that would help us progress Nick, you're raising yeah, your
2: sorry, hand it was just, <laughs> I, Yeah, it was just a very quick point, it was on the we were talking about research, are you familiar with um, I think it's Valerie Hobb's research I'm not, no I have to send you it she basically she did a hundred hour celta course in Leeds and then she followed that up by staying in touch with the other participants on the course and her focus was about reflection but she but through doing that you do actually learn quite a bit about the other people I, if I find it I'll try and send it to you anyway that's like
0: please do and uh, yeah we'll, we'll put some show notes together with links to well your blog Nick and articles like that and any research like that would be be good to share well thank you very much i won't keep you guys any longer with two sessions no, right. no, yeah, Thanks very much. <laughs> but i really appreciate your contributions and it's been very interesting thanks very much no, I,
3: i've really enjoyed it thank you so much yeah likewise thank you all
0: thanks to you all
1: it's been a bit of really interesting
0: that's it for episode nine we hope you've enjoyed this podcast if you have please subscribe via itunes or apple Podcasts, spotify or all the usual podcast providers or leave us a review very much appreciated see you next time cheerio